Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I would like to begin by paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I am coming to you from today. Land where at brainwaves we tell our stories, and land where the traditional custodians have told their stories for many, many years before us, and continue to tell their stories. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who are listening today. Hello and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR, 8.55am on your dial and digitally. I'm Flick Manning, your host, and I'm thrilled to be sharing this time with you today as you drive home. Brainwaves is a mental health-focused show with a lived experience lens. We enjoy having guests on with a broad spectrum of experience with mental health, from those living with the conditions to those treating them and everyone in between. I've had the privilege over the last two weeks to be interviewing Dr. Susan Trackman from the United States of America about a broad range of mental health topics. Today's episode is part two. Dr. Susan Trackman is a practicing psychiatrist with over 30 years of experience and is passionate about exploring medically unexplained illnesses through the lens of psychiatry. She's an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Virginia Commonwealth University and clinical associate professor of psychiatry at George Washington University in America where she teaches medical students, residents, and post-residency fellows in psychiatry. She's currently working on a book about the mind-body connection and psychosomatic disorders. Susan, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me back. Absolute pleasure. I'd love to know what is the role of anxiety in functional gastrointestinal disorders? That's a great question. And let me just go tell you a little bit about a little bit of an uh, embryology lesson. So when we were all little balls of cells, before we even became an embryo, there was a, an organ called uh, the neural crest. And the neural crest provides the cells that will later become your brain and spinal cord. So those travel north to become your brain and spinal cord. And another portion of them travel, I would say, south. And they reside within the wall of your intestines. And, and that's called the enteric nervous system. So even before we became fetuses, our brains and our gut were connected, and they still are. So there is a direct connection between your brain and your gut. Think about all the sayings that we have that essentially illustrate this. I have butterflies in my stomach. I get sick to my stomach. The thought of you makes me sick. So there is a direct connection between your brain and your gut. And I'm sure you know the experience, maybe before you became so proficient at your job, Flick, where the thought of having to get on and, and talk to a bunch of people through a microphone and wondering what they were going to say, maybe it made you a little bit nervous in your brain and maybe you felt a little bit nervous in your gut, like, ooh, I have to go to the bathroom or, ooh, I feel kind of nauseous or, right? Absolutely. Well, we've all been there and, you know, to this day, get a bit anxious before I have to do speak publicly, but you're making it so easy. So thank you. But, but, you know, we're all like this, even those of us who've been doing it for a long time. So what will sometimes happen is people don't recognize the fact that they're anxious. We can significantly make an impact on their gastrointestinal uh, symptoms. Uh, there's a term we use in the U.S., and I'm sure it's worldwide. It's called irritable bowel syndrome. I call that 
meaning we don't know what's wrong with you, right? I mean, it's a real diagnosis, but essentially it is the classic functional gastrointestinal disorder. Why is it called functional versus organic? Again, arbitrary distinction, right? Organic means we can see what's wrong with you. You've got this going on in your stomach. We treat this and you'll be fine. Functional means we're not finding anything physical wrong with you. So it's got to be something else, right? So once I explain that to folks, hopefully it makes sense. We can address it. There's a lot of ways to address something like that. There are certain medications that will help, but I also recommend in addition to medicine, if a person wants to take it and some people don't, there are behavioral things that one can do to uh, ease your functional gastrointestinal symptoms. One is diet, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit in terms of the environment of your gut, how it affects the rest of your body. If you're eating a trash diet, it's going to affect how you feel. And I'll explain that in in just a bit. Um, Two, if you're someone who walks around with stress all the time, it's going to affect what's going on with your gut and your digestive tract. So we have to learn how to get you to relax. Meditation is a wonderful practice. Um, Exercise is wonderful. One thing that people don't recognize that may uh, may impact their gastrointestinal symptoms is the quality of their sleep. How much alcohol are they using? Are they indulging in other recreational substances? What's their home environment like? What's their work environment like? You know, as long as we can, if you can modify some of those things behaviorally, that will significantly have an impact on how well their gut is processing food substances and may alleviate some or all of their symptoms. It's pretty amazing how linked those things can be. I mean, obviously there sometimes is you know, overlap where you have got something on going on in the gut that is functional and is then affecting, I assume, your mental health as well. So it can kind of work in reverse, I assume. Is that correct? Absolutely. So uh, the environment of your gut is called your gut biome. And when you asked me in an earlier episode, uh, what have I learned? I've learned a lot about the gut biome, which I never learned in medical school, uh, which is to say that you have good bacteria and bad bacteria living in your gut. And you might say, oh, bad bacteria, what's that? There has to be a balance, right? Because you have too much good bacteria, you can get symptoms. You have too many bad bacteria, you have symptoms. They have to live, they have to coexist, so to speak. The problem occurs when you have an overgrowth of what we call the, quote, the bad bacteria. What happens if that's the case? Normally, we would like to think that the gut biome or the gut environment has what we call sort of tight uh, joints, tight tight junctures, uh, so to speak. If you think about... Well, let's think about bricks. Think about bricks. You'd like to think that your bricks are joined fairly tightly, right? Because if you don't have tight joints in your bricks, water may get into your house or bad things are going to happen. If you think about that as your gut, uh, what we'd like to think of as the gut environment, you want those joints to be tight. If there's an overgrowth of the bad bacteria, those joints might become a little bit looser. So you've got a little bit of opening. So if there's an opening, not only can bad things come in, but bad things can get out. So some of those um, toxins, bad bacteria, and whatever else might be residing in your gut gets out. Well, where does it go? Well, it travels everywhere. So one of the places it can travel is back to your brain because remember the gut and the brain, they're buddies. They talk all the time. They're like besties all the time. So that can actually impact how you feel in your brain. It can impact the level of anxiety. It can impact depression. And those are the things I never learned in medical school. And I had to learn about in the course of writing this book in my big section on gastrointestinal disorders. One of the things that can, a very common thing that can impact the gut biome is taking antibiotics. So 
antibiotics are appropriate in certain circumstances. Unfortunately, what we believe is, and I think it's true, I think antibiotics are overused in many cases. That kind of knocks out the, ba- the good bacteria. So what happens? Well, a lot of times in women, after taking antibiotics, they develop a yeast infection. And that's a direct cause, right? Because you, you've got to start eating yogurt to build back the good bacteria. Uh, things have to live, have to coexist and have to live in balance because if they get out of balance, something bad might happen. That makes perfect sense to me. I really like the analogy of the brick. I can visualize that. I'm sure everyone at home is imagining that and probably many women listening have probably <laughs> experienced exactly what you're talking about now, you know, overprescribing antibiotics or how that may affect things. I always think that there's probably a wider picture to that of why people are receiving so many antibiotics. You know, for example, are their workplaces making it significantly harder for them to take time away when they're sick? So mm-hmm. they're turning to antibiotics as the quicker fix, mm-hmm. which leads to kind of all those other things around mental health. What are your observations in terms of that? You know, what could we be doing differently to ebb things off before they flow downstream? Because it's exactly what seems to be happening. I think in general, human beings, most of us don't like tolerate being uncomfortable. So that's one thing. The other thing is workplace environment. The good thing I believe is during COVID, many of us here were allowed to work from home. So many people got to work from home. And you know what? The cases of uh, infectious disease went way down because you're not coming into contact with other people. The concern is now that many people are being required to go back to work, there's a real worry that this flu season is going to be horrible here in the U.S., because you're suddenly going to come into contact with others. You have no immunity because you've been in lockdown. What are you going to do? So I think uh, more employers have to be a bit more liberal with their leave time. And that uh, if someone is not feeling well and may potentially be contagious to other people on the job, they are entitled to time off. My own child, who's a second year medical resident, contracted COVID uh, last week and uh, knock on wood is doing okay. But she's supposed to be on call on Saturday. She gets five days off for COVID. She's not going to feel better by Saturday. She's got to go to work, right? So, um, you know, I think there's going to have to be a recognition that uh, perhaps people don't get better in an X amount of days, even though you believe they should. This is really worrisome for folks who are in lower socioeconomic class because they don't work, they don't get paid. And so many of them have to go to work sick, which is bad for them and and bad for other people. But I think, you know, there's going to have to be policy changes at the top and also recognition on the part of patients that antibiotics are not always the answer. There are other ways to get better. Um, You have to learn to be patient, but try to teach someone to be patient. Not the easiest task. Definitely not the easiest task. But, you know, we're seeing absolutely the same thing happening here now. We have just kind of gone through the back of our flu season, which was appalling Um, And all sorts of other viruses and mutations of viruses and things that, like you said, we're all suddenly out and about again. No one's got immunity to anything. And people are just finding themselves literally going from one antibiotic to the next Mm -hmm. antibiotic to the next antibiotic in order to be able to get back into the office. Right. Which, of course, we're going to see that flow on effect. We're already starting to see that flow on effect on top of the mental health crisis that's so clearly going on everywhere in the world. So -hmm. thank you for your views on that as well. Susan, do you feel that modern life affects how our neurotransmitters are being used by our brains and therefore bodies? And if so, how? Absolutely. Um, I think, as you know, we spoke earlier, we're living in a very, very stressful time. Um, I cannot recall in my lifetime uh, a time uh, when 
the world was such a stressful place. So we know that stress has impact on our bodies. It certainly has an impact on our brains. The rate of mental health uh, diagnoses has climbed exponentially in the past several years. Part of it probably is from COVID-related illnesses, either having contracted it, the illness itself, or fear of contracting it, or potentially loss of a loved one from COVID. The world economic situation is not great right now. And again, we have other things going on. We've got, like I said, we've got a dictator in Russia who's you know, threatening to drop a nuclear bomb. I mean, uh, this is a very anxious world that we live in right now. So uh, yes, it affects your neurotransmitters. Chronic stress uh, can cause a depletion of one or more neurotransmitters, which can lead to uh, increase in all kinds of mental health issues most notably depression and anxiety. And we know that people who are anxious or depressed have more physical symptoms and more physical ailments. So they are directly connected and they're very much influenced by what's happening in our daily lives right now. Makes perfect sense. Now, you are very interested in psychosomatic disorders. And in fact, you're obviously writing something about this within the book. Can you explain to us a little bit about what those disorders are and what attracted you to want to write about it? Sure. So this is one of my areas of expertise within psychiatry. What does psychosomatic mean? Psycho refers to the mind. Somatic refers to the body. And as we've been talking about these past couple of weeks, uh, they're intimately related. You can't function one without the other, right? So everything that affects your your brain affects your body and vice versa. Um, I've wanted to write this book for 10 years. It started 10 years ago when my kids were smaller um, because that's what I was practicing and that's what I was seeing uh, when I was teaching uh, medical students and residents. It's what I did my fellowship in. It's just a fascinating area. And the more that new diagnoses are coming out, the more that we see that they are very much intimately related to one's mental state. I'm just going to take autoimmune disorders for a moment because they become uh, much more prevalent. We're not really sure why. Um, I think I have an idea of why, but uh, I'm not sure um, because I'm not a rheumatologist. However, I do see lots of patients in my practice who have autoimmune disorders. So what are autoimmune disorders? You have an immune system, which are your defenders, so to speak. So when your defenders see an an invader, whether it's a virus, whether it's uh, trauma, like I said, you know, you cut your finger, whether it's um, a bacteria, whether it's a tumor, the invaders are on alert and it's like sending in the army, right? They go in, they attack, they attack, they attack. That's what they're supposed to do. But in the course of that, uh, they cause inflammation. That's the process by which even a cut on your finger will heal. It has to become inflamed and then your body does what it's supposed to do and the cut heals. However, in some folks, the immune system sort of gets out of whack. And not only does it attack the invaders, it starts to attack your own cells. And that's what an autoimmune disorder is. So examples would be things like rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, lupus, Lyme disease, which is infectious, but it also becomes autoimmune. So what happens and why is this happening? Not only do your defenders attack the invaders and your own cells, but they, they can influence what's going on in your brain because, infl- because inflammation affects the brain. And people who have autoimmune disorders, uh, which are often misdiagnosed or not diagnosed for years, have a higher incidence of depression and anxiety. Is it because of the illness itself? Perhaps. Is it because it takes so long to get diagnosed? Perhaps. 
Um, but I think uh, one of the theories about why we're seeing more of this now, there is a theory that's related to the whole process of uh, sanitation. And uh, over time, has we've had more and more sanitation and more and more um, operations, or so to speak, uh, or policies to keep our environments, quote, sanitary. Sometimes you can over-sanitize. A situation that's like taking an antibiotic. Sometimes you can over over um, sanitize a situation. So what happens is we're not exposed to these invaders before, so we can't build up any immunity. So when we are exposed to them, sometimes there's an overreaction because we have not seen them before. That's been a theory, and I think I write about that theory in the section of my book that's autoimmune disorders. It's not probably the only thing. But the other interesting thing is autoimmune disorders are more common in women of reproductive age. So why is that? Is it a hormonal influence? Again, it's never been proven. Is it because women experience different kinds of stress than men do? It's been not proven. But as with most things, and I think I've discussed this earlier, it's probably multifactorial in nature. As someone living with an autoimmune disorder, I actually live with Crohn's disease. I can completely relate to that. It's very complicated. There's yes. a lot of reasons, I think, why we experience higher levels of mental health conditions, um, partially just because the world is really not designed for people like us to safely move through it, especially not now with the pandemic. So mm -hmm. I think we do have higher levels of stress or different kinds of stress at times. But I think it's an area that continues to need research because, as you said, the numbers of us are going up quite exponentially, we're seeing a huge uptick of it here in Australia as well across the board. So an interesting uh, line of things to continue investigating and I look forward to reading what you have discovered about that too in your book. What do you think has changed within psychiatry over the last few decades in terms of its understanding of how mental health conditions manifest and how to treat them? Oh, I think it's just, uh, it, it's evolved uh, exponentially. Um, you know, I at the beginning of the uh, beginning of the 1900s, um, you know, Freud and his uh, acolytes uh, were uh, pretty much the norm in terms of uh, practicing psychiatry. Um, you know, and, and they had their uh, theories, and, and some of their theories, you know, may be beneficial to rely upon. But you know, over the decades, um, psychiatry has become much more of a biological specialty, meaning. We know so much more about the brain. You know, many people now believe that psychiatry should be considered a subspecialty of neurology because it's a, it's a brain specialty. So we know a lot more about the brain. We know a lot more about how genetics influence uh, mental health. We certainly have developed an inordinate amount of medications to treat serious mental illness. But then again, I think over time, we've learned about what we call the biopsychosocial model, which is essentially... Um, the precursor of what we call now psychosomatic medicine. So what is the biopsychosocial model? It, it, again, it's a multifactorial approach to disease. There's certainly a biological component to most illness. There's a psychological component to most illness. And there's a social component to most illness. And I think like you, uh, you made a point just now about talking about autoimmune disorders, about how obviously it affects you biologically, it affects you psychologically, but also socially, meaning you got to be careful about where you go. I don't know if you're taking an immunosuppressant, but particularly for folks who had autoimmune disorders during the pandemic and were taking immunosuppressants, I mean, they were just sitting ducks. They were sitting ducks for COVID and anything else that came along. So, you know, that's a classic example of a biopsychosocial 
uh, approach to treating illness. And I think that that would be one line of thought for how things have changed dramatically in the past few generations in psychiatry. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. So why do you think then that mental health is still so widely stigmatized globally? Well, because as much as we're trying to make this something that's just part of regular physical health and overall health, you know, think about it. What do people read about? They don't read about anxiety. They don't read about depression. What do they read about? Serial killers. They read about, you know, what do you read? People are drawn to the dramatic. They're not drawn to the mundane. And for most people, reading about anxiety, unless they themselves have it, yeah, they might not be reading about it. People are, you know, we're living in a stressful world. Are people really going to want to read about depression if they don't have it themselves? So I think, unfortunately, like I said, we're drawn to traffic accidents. We're not drawn to the mundane. I think that's a very good point. You know, you see all these things happening and you go, why are you looking at that? It's something so stressful. Why would you, the same as like, why do you keep watching that same news station over and over again that keeps plugging that? Series on, on Jeffrey Dahmer. Why did I watch that's it? That's a great choice. I have no idea. It's, it's a crazy. question that I ponder. Exactly. It's creepy and gory, right? It's good entertainment. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, it's based on truth. But but mm. like I said, you might and I might watch a documentary about anxiety. But is that going to actually make advertisers spend money so that those kind of stories are promoted? I don't know. I don't think so. Susan, I know that you're sort of really investigating the gut-brain axis. And we hear that term a lot, we are what we eat. And I think broadly people understand that, but it is a little bit difficult for people to break down when there's so many nuanced differences in people's human bodies. How would you suggest people think about food in relation to their health and how can they approach that? There are a lot of books written about uh, gut health. Um, there's a section, I think, in my book about, um, you, I think there's a chapter, it's called You Are What You Eat. And, you know, you've probably heard that as a kid, or I, I probably heard it as a kid, but the truth is what you eat affects the environment of your gut. And remember, we talked about good and bad bacteria. So what I like to tell people, and you can't just tell people what they should eat. As I tell my patients, I'm not going to put you on a diet because people hate diets. Why do they hate diets? Because people don't like to be in a state of deprivation. You know, as I said to you earlier about illness, people don't like to be uncomfortable. It, it's, you know, tolerating discomfort is not a pleasant thing. And as humans, we're impatient. We don't like to. We don't like to be uncomfortable. So you have to have reasonable modifications. So what would be a reasonable modification? Trying to eliminate or limit processed foods. I understand people are in a rush. I understand people don't want to have to cook for themselves every night. But but just having healthy food, for example, non-processed food, uh, lots of fruits and vegetables. One does not have to engage in a vegetarian diet to be healthy. But limiting, you know, fatty foods, limiting red meat, limiting things that have, you know, nitrates, for example. Um, I mean, I haven't eaten a hot dog in, I don't know, 20 years. That doesn't mean you don't have to eat a hot dog. But, you know, you just sort of, you have to make reasonable modifications. I suggest to people that if they don't like, um, if they don't like things like, you know, yogurt or uh, kombucha or uh, pickled uh, or uh, things like kimchi or sauerkraut, just take a probiotic. You don't have to taste it. You don't have to eat it. Just take it because that will improve your overall gut biome. You know, there are other ways to get that kind of benefit, the good bacteria in your gut, because as we know, and we talked about earlier, if you've got a healthy gut, you're going to have a healthy body. You're going to have a healthy brain because like I said, the besties like to talk to each other all the time. 
Again, very beautifully worded, nice and simply worded. I love that. Now, just talking a little bit about your book, obviously, this is something that you've been working on for 10 years, I think, as you mentioned earlier. What is the the thing that you hope people will get from your book? What I'm trying to impart is education and normalization. So uh, I have included uh, many, many patient stories. And what I've heard from folks uh, is that when they hear about other people in a similar circumstance, it makes them feel like, you know, they're not an outlier, that they're not weird. Um, And I think also explaining the biology of how these things work in simple terms makes it understandable. I think the worst thing or one of the worst things for folks is to not know why they feel the way they do, right? You don't feel good. No one's telling me why I don't feel good. There must be something really wrong with me because no one can figure out what's wrong with me. It's got to be bad. But I think if you can read about other folks in a similar circumstance and how they've addressed their issue, it normalizes it. So you don't feel outside the realm of what's considered normal because we talked earlier about why is there still a stigma? There's a stigma because of lack of knowledge. So that's really what I hope to impart is to educate so that people don't feel that there's something really weird about them if they have a... a, gastrointestinal problem that no one can figure out. Because, you know, we use the term medically unexplained symptoms. And and there is an element of my book that describes medically unexplained. But like, what I like to say is, there's no, it's really not medically unexplained. It is explained, you just have to know where to look. And if you look with a narrow scope, you might miss it. If you look with a broad scope, you're more likely to find it. Yeah, that's great. I think people will get a lot from that as well. And I think that kind of education is going to be so valuable for so many people. So thank you for putting your expertise into a way that all of us can understand it. My pleasure. This sadly concludes part two of my interview with you, Susan. It's been such a pleasure and it's been so interesting and thought-provoking spending this time with you. And I'm sure everyone listening as they drive home has found this very stimulating. So thank you for being on the show. I can't thank you enough. This has been a joy and I hope you'll uh, have me back. Oh, you know I will, absolutely. So to everyone listening, I want to say thank you for spending your time with myself and Dr. Trackman. Don't worry if you missed part one or perhaps you just want to soak it all in again, you can catch up with these two episodes as well as all our previous ones on the 3CR podcast page as well as on the app and on Spotify as well. And, of course, as I leave you all today as you drive home, I just want to remind you that your mental health is of equal importance to your physical health. So if you haven't already done so today, please take a moment to take a breath, inhale deeply, exhale just as deeply, and shower your hardworking body and mind with much-deserved care because everything comes from your quality of life. I look forward to chatting with you next time on Brainwaves. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.